Medic 43, District 1, Engine 51, Response, Cardiac Arrest. Hello, everybody. Welcome again to another edition of the MCHD Paramedic Podcast. This is Dr. Casey Patrick, and if you hear the noise in the background, we are live from 2021 Texas EMS Conference. So forgive uh, maybe the less than perfect audio in exchange for some pretty special guests and some special topics that we have coming live from the conference. And joining us on this episode, we have our medical director, Rob Dixon. Good afternoon, Casey. And we have Dr. Taylor Ratcliffe the Director of Central Texas Division of Pre-Hospital Medicine for Baylor Scott & White. Thanks for joining us, Dr. Ratcliffe. Hi, guys. Thanks for having me. And this is a topic that, honestly, in my pre-EMS days, is just a regular old doofus emergency physician that I honestly had no appreciation for. And the, the severity and the necessity and the importance of discussing this topic has definitely grown in my own mind over the past five or six years. And that's the concept of lift assist and what, what those mean and why those are important and why we need to take these really seriously as medical directors, as paramedics, as pre-hospital providers. So before we get into the meat of the discussion, uh, Taylor, tell the, tell the listeners a little about yourself and the EMS services with which you work and sort of why this topic became uh, one of your talks here at Texas EMS. Oh gosh, I always screw this part up. So. Briefly, I know we only have like six hours for this podcast, so uh, I, uh, I cut my teeth as a paramedic and a firefighter in Lubbock. I had the chance to do you know a little bit of everything there and uh, even a little bit of aeromedical work. And uh, I don't know what happened. I think somebody drugged me or something, and I signed up to go to medical school and uh, went to med school at Tech, and then residency brought us to Central Texas at the original Scott & White Hospital for emergency medicine. And Kind of the game plan all along was to do EMS medicine, and, and uh, I've had some great mentors and an opportunity to, to be able to work with the agencies that I work with now in and around the central Texas area. So in Bell County, that's where Temple is. I work with the uh, City of Belton Fire Department, City of Parker Heights, City of Coppers Cove. Uh, also work with all of uh, Waco and McLennan County, and that includes the AMR operation there, uh, Waco Fire Department, uh, some of the smaller sister seven cities like uh, Hewitt, Bellmead, and, uh, and a lot of great uh, agencies out there like Woodway, et cetera. Uh, work with a couple of different uh, aeromedical partners. Uh, there's uh, a new aircraft up there, there's Texas Airlift One. One of the more interesting uh, recent additions is I've, I've had the privilege of starting to work with uh, Starflight now as their associate medical director under uh, Dr. James Kempema. A lot of uh, interesting things that come along with that too. So, um, and I would be remiss if I didn't mention working with a couple of 911 centers, a uh, couple of uh, primary combined dispatch centers, shout out to our telecommunicators out there, and of course our great paramedic programs and faculty. The listeners know exactly where you are and the services you work with. Why Lift Assist? This is on the on the docket for Texas EMS. That's one of the ones that I picked off to, to try to have you on to discuss a little bit about your, your lecture and, and uh, you know, sort of where did the idea for this one come, you know, from your standpoint, as far as, you know, looking into lift assist, um, just, you know, how did you gravitate towards this topic enough that you ended up lecturing on it here, you know, coming up Monday, Tuesday? Well, I mean, I think it's funny, like, like you mentioned earlier, Casey, it was one of these things. And, and first of all, I'm going to start the lecture by calling myself guilty as anybody else. Yeah. Right. I, I ran a whole lot of lift assist calls when I was a paramedic and I walked in you know, I wasn't ever rude, but I would I would greet the patient and I would very promptly get them back in their bed and I'd be out the door and back in my bed in no time, right? 
And and I think as I've maybe I'm getting wiser. I don't know. Do you think we're getting wiser? I don't know. Certainly older, Taylor. That, certainly that, older. That's for sure. <laughs> but no, I think we come to recognize that there's a reason that, that we're at these people's residences actually doing the lift assist, right? I mean, there's a reason that we're there. And a lot of times it's not because they're feeling good. I think it's a lot of times because they have an undiagnosed injury or illness or one of these other problems. And if we're not careful, we're not going to pick up on that. And when we come back 12 or 24 hours later, that person's going to be an extremis. So just uh, just seemed like the right time to uh, to bring that up. Maybe some QAQI things on my mind, et cetera. So. I, I, one of my repeating mantras is it's never a good idea for the EMS providers to be the last folks to see someone alive. It's never a... Uh, a good idea. So are there specific protocol or oversight pieces you recommend in helping monitor lift assist care and outcomes? So, you know, it's funny, our attorneys say the same thing you just said. Uh, yeah, no, I think, I think we can do, do a couple of things here. And, and, and certainly I have not um, done the best. There's definitely room to go for me with my agencies as well. But number one is, is while we're there, let's try not to miss things, right? So we can probably, like a lot of different things, we can probably protocolize or checklist some of these things to make sure when we go down on these lift assist calls that we're remembering those important eight to 10 things that we need to check for, do, assess, et cetera, to look for those sick people, injured people. And then like anything else, and this is maybe, I don't know how y'all feel, this is one of the hardest parts of my job is making sure that we're doing a good job on the QAQI side of the house and actually looking at those calls that traditionally we don't find very quote unquote interesting. Yeah, I think it's one of the things that's really interesting about falls and fall assessment and lift assist to, to us and our system, I'm sure, that you see. Can you talk a little bit about just when, when you look at all these agencies Dr. Ratcliffe is medical director for, you have a wide variation in the levels of providers and the, the uh, back-end training of the providers and the ability to do QAQI. That, to me, is the really, really hard part of how do you write a protocol to kind of catch all those levels of providers and all those different types of services? Some may be volunteer, some may be well-funded you know, funded county services. Talk a little bit about that. So I think the great, the great part of that question is that being able to assess a patient and, and evaluate the associated danger with a lithostist call is not an ALS skill, right? And so that's kind of what we're gonna talk about in the lecture tomorrow is that there's things that we don't find because we don't look and there's things we never look for, right? And I can't count the number of times, and again, I'm gonna throw myself under the bus, that I didn't get a set of vital signs on a lift assist patient. You walk in, you say, are you hurt? No, I'm fine. How do you feel? I feel fine. Okay, thank you very much. Call us back if you need anything and we're out the door, right? So I don't care whether the provider is a high functioning ALS credentialed member or whether they're a first responder, you know, getting some vital signs and understanding what to do with that information is simple and we can all do it, right? The other thing is, is hopefully, I hope everybody out there still has both their hands, maybe some, somebody doesn't, but uh, physical assessment, right? Mm -hmm. we, we, we don't do a good enough physical assessment on these patients to make sure that we feel everything, palpate everything, check everything to look for those commonly missed uh, undiagnosed injuries. I'd even add on onto the vital sign exam pile to just remember that people need lifted. They need picked up when they're unwell. People who are well generally get back into bed. If you could get to the bathroom, back to your bed, get to the kitchen and back to your couch two days ago, and today you can't get to the kitchen and back to your couch or you can't get out of the floor into your bed, generally that's a sign that something's wrong. You right. Know? Yeah, and as Casey likes to say on another cast that he's done right, there's the, the why of the fall, 
and, or the lift assist, and there's the associated trauma afterwards. So really it's kind of two fairly complex assessments that the, the providers have to do. Yeah, Not an they, easy call. Did they injure themselves from potentially falling and you know why did they fall in the first place exactly? What are some of those danger signs that a lift assist may be killer in disguise? So just for the listeners out there, walk through some of the vital signs and some of the exam findings that may be problematic. What are some things that we need to look for? Well, and I think just to, just to home in on what you guys just said a second ago that relates to that question is, is did you fall or did you syncopize, right? Did, did you fall or did you actually pass out? And, and I know you guys, if you're anything like me, even in the ER, in the calm and quiet and the time that we have in the ER, I have a lot of times, a lot of trouble teasing that out of the patient, whether it was syncope or whether it was a fall, you know? And so I think that's tough. And maybe, Casey, to your point, maybe that's one of the um, points to take there is, is, is do figure out, did your patient fall or did they syncopize, right? Because generally speaking, we're not running on 30 year olds, right? We're generally gonna go get patients out of the floor that are a little bit older in age. So, you know, if you had a 75 or an 85 year old that syncopized and hit the floor, generally that's a person we're probably gonna admit to the hospital for further workup, right? So that's kind of a red flag right there. Um, and, and you asked, let's see, the, the, the rest of that was what, what were some other uh, sort of killer in disguise giveaways? Yeah, Is that yeah. the essence? And I think one of the things that we, we see often reviewing charts in Montgomery County, you know, is that absolute vital sign sometimes can be a little bit concerning or a little bit, I shouldn't say concerning, a little bit limiting in that you'll have a, an elderly patient, you know, just like you said, most of these folks are older and they've got, you know, a heart rate of 99 and, and a blood pressure of 100. And you think, oh, they're, you know, their heart rate and their blood pressure are quote unquote normal. And, you know, we've moved towards this wasn't something I don't think that was really taught even when I was in residency, you know, 15, 15, 20 years ago. And that the concept of shock index, you know, and that patient with a heart rate of 99 and a systolic of of 100 has a shock index of one, especially if they're on a beta blocker. Uh, they may be relatively tachycardic. So uh, looking at heart rate and systolic, I think is important. What else, Rob, down there? Yeah, I mean, I think just a good physical assessment of the patient. And as Taylor said, you know, you, you can you have blood glucose, you have other testing that we can do, a thorough physical assessment, and, and kind of teasing out of the why. I think that, to me, if it's not a clear mechanical fall, so the patient cannot voice that they had, I tripped over this block and fell over, and couldn't get up or sustain these injuries, then to me, I, wor- I worry about a syncopal episode in those patients, or my legs just gave out, or I felt weak, uh, I, wasn't, I just slid down to the floor, I slid out of my chair is fairly common to me. All those are worrisome for a syncopal episode. So I would add for an ALS provider, a 12 lead, absolutely yeah. mandatory in all these patients. Yeah, temp, I think temp gets left out. You know, that's the other piece of the puzzle. Right. That's a big you, one. You may not be syncopal or trip. You may be the generally weak patient that did just slide down the wall. And those are the ones you really have to worry about sepsis in disguise, I feel like. And so temperature is oftentimes left out there. If you get a temp of, you know, 100.3, you need to look at their legs, look for cellulitis, ask about cough and cold, abdominal pain, diarrhea, you know, all the other infection questions. Do they have frequent urination or loss of continence, you know, to point towards a urinary tract infection. And in the age of COVID, I mean, it can be uh, probably disguised as just about anything. No, that's, that's really, really important. And, and, and that's one thing that we're sort of talking about uh, in, the, in the lecture is 
what should those relative vital signs be for those people? Again, we're talking about older people. We're not talking about a 21-year-old that can stub their toe and jump their heart rate up to 130. These, these older people, these 85 and 90-year-olds, should not be tachycardic. When you think about their max physiologic heart rate, if we did it from an exercise physiology standpoint, you know, that whole 220 minus your age thing, if you're 95 years old and your heart rate is 100, you've reached, I'm terrible at math, but you've reached over 85% of your max physiologic heart rate. And, and yeah, there's a reason. There's something is wrong. And this is, this is something that literature does exist for. This is one, you know, I've sat through a couple variations on lift assist talks over the past couple years that have really, you know, piqued my interest. One of the ones came out of Ontario. We'll link that in the show notes. And in that study, they took, they took all the lift assists and they followed them to see what happened after they went out and picked them up. And, you know, over one in five went to the hospital within the next two weeks. You know, one in 10 were admitted to the hospital within the next two weeks. And about 1% of those died. And when you look at the admission diagnosis on those folks that were admitted, about a third of them were sepsis. So I think while that's our gut feeling that sepsis needs to be one of the things that's on our list, uh, you know, not to be... The, the literature supports guy all the time but that's what that's what uh the evidence tells us so we need to look at temp look at shock index consider age and and max heart rate response look for beta blockers on the on the med list yeah, and uh and and be concerned and, and assume like like rob said if the story's unclear i'm just going to assume the worst i'm going to assume that they syncopized i'm going to you know if the vital signs are in between i'm i'm going to act as if it's sepsis and use that to try to convince the patient that they need further workup. No, I couldn't agree more. I mean, I think this is a huge, huge topic. So I'm, I'm glad to see it on the roster here. Uh, and for all transparency, you know, we're an ALS service, but Casey and I are the medical directors for all of our first responders. We have about a thousand first responders of varying, varying levels in our fire departments. And this is something that I would really like to see rolled out to a lot of our fire services and, and kind of do what you're doing. You know, we, in EMS, we have a limited amount of ALS, you know, double medic truck resources available. And we're really going to have to do well with that, our resource allocation over the next couple of years uh, to get some of these patients assessed and not utilize all those resources. Wait, what's this What's this double medic you speak of? Double medic, yeah, oh, double medic. Okay, now we know where they all are. All that's right, right. Got it. okay. <laughs> no, they're at staffing agencies. Oh, that's <laughs> correct, yeah, that's right. Well, and, and so Rod, just to touch on that, I think you said something really, really important. And our audience, I want them to hear this before this comes out of my mouth. I am still a card-carrying firefighter, okay? Did everyone hear me? I am still a firefighter, all right? But when we talk about resource utilization and everything else, Sometimes, because we do want to keep the transport ALS unit in service, if we think it's going to be a lift assist call, who do we send? Fire. We send the fire department. Absolutely. Yeah. And so I think it's important. They're, they are absolutely clinically capable. I have the utmost trust in our volunteers and our paid firefighters, right? But at the same time, we have to, like you said, we have to make sure and get all this messaging out to everybody because they may be doing the lion's share of this evaluation for these potentially dangerous patients. Yeah, I mean, that's really what you just said is so important. That's where we want to get our region. We have to get our region there because the the call volume is not going down. The burden is going up. And as we have an aging population, we're not getting less of these calls, guys. We're getting more of these calls. And then, you know, that's where really the community health impact comes into play here in that if 
you know, it's all about getting the most qualified and best appropriate provider to the right patient at the right time and really spreading, spreading that wealth, so to speak. The other piece sometimes that I hear from folks, you know, in, in defense of the no patient or, you know, when there's no chart done or there's no vital signs done is the, you know, the patient didn't want to go anyways. So why does it matter? And it matters because, you know, yeah, the patient may just want picked up and they may not want to go to the ER and you may still end up writing a refusal on these patients. And that's okay. The chart has to read and our demeanor and our actions have to read that we've got the patient's best interest at heart, not our own, meaning lack of charting, getting off shift on time, those sort of things. We still have to look objectively at our vital signs, at our exam, use our medical knowledge to try to push patients to the correct care. And if that means, hey, you know, your, your leg's red and your heart rate's 110 and you've got a temp of 100.1, this could be, you know, early infection. Let's get that looked at. And that means that at 6.30 a.m., you've got to take that patient to the ER as opposed to put them in bed and go back in service and then off shift, then maybe that's the case. But we want our entire push, our chart to read as such, that we're doing what's best for the patient and and being thorough in the end. Would you all agree with that? Well, and so that's another, that's kind of the closing bit of the presentation tomorrow is the documentation has to protect you, right? I mean, we say this, how often do we say this? We say this all the time. You can provide the best care, but if it's not documented, you're, you're out on an island, right? So I think when you look at some of those same papers you were talking about, Casey, agencies report between 3 and 5% of all of their calls being for some kind of a lift assist fall-related thing, right? So, I mean, an agency that runs 100,000 calls a year, that's a ton. That's a ton of calls. And so I think our tendency is to go, well, these aren't very important. There wasn't a lot of clinical medicine, so I'm just going to burn right through the documentation. Documentation's got to be careful, it's got to be specific, and it's got to be thorough because those will bite you in the butt. And none of those words you just said were long. It's not, it's not a thousand words. Right. It's very, very simple. It's, you've got to get vital signs, you've got to do an exam, and you document you did those things, and then you explained risks and benefits to the patient, and they understood those and were able to repeat those back to you. It's, it's really no more complicated than that, and that's not four paragraphs most of the time. There may be a very complex family situation or social situation that may need uh, hashed out and sometimes those can be a little bit longer but most of the time it's pretty simple and straightforward this dr patrick uh, plugging his fears refusal lecture and podcast these two go together (laughs) because because a lot of these they do go together because a lot of these folks do just want pick picked up and put back on their couch and we may go sniff around and find a, a smoldering infection or concern for you know, a traumatic injury that they may not want to deal with, especially in the age of COVID-19 with hospitals being backed up and contagion fears. Not everybody wants to go to the ER quite as quickly, from my personal experience working in the ER, as they did two years ago, three years ago. So they may end up refusing. They may end up staying, and that's, that's okay in the end as long as our documentation suggests that we had their best interest at heart and not ours. Well, what's, what's the word that we use in front of refusal or consent? It's informed, mm-hmm. right? And I think that's the big thing. So you're, you hit on a great thing right there. They may not need to go right then and there, but we can ensure or help ensure a safe disposition, right? So if they have family at the house, if they have support, we can say, hey, it really sounds like your mom has a urinary tract infection. Things 
you know, I understand you don't want to go to the hospital tonight, but you really, really, really need to take her to the doctor in the morning or this is going to get worse. You know, even that, as long as we document it well, can contribute to an overall safe disposition. So, yeah, I think that's super important. Couldn't agree more, guys. I mean, ditto. Well, this has been an excellent talk if you're uh, interested and want more lift assist discussion. Uh, feel free to send us an email at podcast at mchd-tx.org. I'm going to volunteer Taylor. I'm sure he'd be happy to share his slides with anybody out there who's interested. We'll link some of the evidence that we discussed in the show notes. And uh, if you're here at the conference and you get a chance to listen to this one, I'm sure it's going to be one that will have uh, tons of value. I'd like to thank Dr. Ratcliffe for joining us today on the podcast. And uh, thank, thank Dr. Dixon down there. Andy is over here making sure we sound as good as we can in the crowded exhibition hall. As always, if you have uh, feedback, ideas for future podcasts, please shoot us an email, podcast at mchd-tx.org. We're going to line up uh, our next uh, Texas CMS MCHD Paramedic Podcast 2021. As always, thanks for listening. We'll be uh, talking to you again soon. This podcast was brought to you by the Montgomery County Hospital District, Texas. Production and editing by Andrew Adams. Questions or comments, which are always welcome, can be sent to podcast at mchd-tx.org. Make sure to subscribe above to keep updated to all our future casts. Music, copyright, Kevin McLeod, Incompetech.com. Licensed under Creative Commons by Attribution 3.0.